I'm Tyler Johnson. I am one of the pastors here and a part of the preaching team. We're in the second to last week in the book of Jonah, Jonah chapter 3. So if you uh, open up your Bibles or type in something on your phone and get to Jonah chapter 3, this summer we'll actually be looking at the book of Philippians, but we're in the second to last week of Jonah, Jonah chapter 3. So how many of you in here have heard the phrase, well, that's the pot calling the kettle black? Okay, participate more. How many of you? I just found out recently that's actually a, came out of Spain, that phrase, and then got translated into English, and for years and years and years, people have used it to mean when you call out wrong in somebody else or frustration in somebody else, be careful because you're likely doing the exact same thing. So the idea of a pot being black, a kettle being black, and the pot going, you're black, and the kettle going, really? So are you, right? Um, this happens all the time. It happens in the workplace. It happens in our homes. It happens in our culture. It happens on social media all the time. It happens in the answers we think will answer problems. In fact, we'll just recreate it. Uh, I was reminded again of it on a plane a couple days ago watching the Marvel movie Black Panther. Well, that's the pot calling the kettle black, and this is all over the book of Jonah. Jonah is the pot that's calling the kettle black. So before we get into Jonah chapter 3, let's pray. God, we pray um, that you would move this from being a story that's out there to, be a, to being a story that's represented in our own hearts. Spirit, we pray that you would convict us of truth. God, we pray that in all kinds of ways that your word would comfort those who feel afflicted this morning. And God, that your word would afflict those who feel too comfortable. God, be with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the Bible is a book about God. And I want to tell you that far too often I and you... And we together make the Bible about us, or we'll make it about the characters that the Bible's speaking about, and it does speak about those characters, and it does speak about us, but the Bible fundamentally is about God. And the book of Jonah is presenting this amazing picture of God, but it's communicating God in his totality, not just a portion of God that we prefer or a portion of God that we like. The Apostle Paul, as he was speaking to all people in the book of Romans, made this statement in Romans chapter 11, verse 22. He said, consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God. The word consider is behold, look at, ponder deeply. Consider the kindness and the sternness. That word sternness means severity. How often have you considered the severity of God? If sternness helps you, that's the word, the sternness of God, the severity of God, a word that's used in Jonah chapter 3, the anger of God. Well, there's only one God, 
And God is who he is in his character. And the words of the Bible help us break down certain words to help us understand just who he is. You don't section God off just like I can't section you off. The minute I try to section you off, you'll go, well, that's not the whole me. And we want to know the true God, the full God. And here, Paul's saying we must consider the kindness and the severity of God. And this passage in Jonah chapter 3 will certainly help us consider something many of us may not have considered, which is the severity of God. Jonah 3 verse 1, we get started. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Now, if you're not familiar with the story, I want to present this question that you would ask along with me of why did the word of God have to come to Jonah a second time? And here's the answer if you've read the first two chapters, because Jonah did not obey the first time. The first call is in the first verse of the book. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. This is the first time. Son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. The wickedness of this great city Nineveh, which was in Assyria, had risen like a stench in God's nostrils, the wickedness of this city. And he said to Jonah, Jonah, I'm using you to go preach against Nineveh about its wickedness. God is highly concerned about wickedness because he's so concerned with love. God calls the human beings that he created to love him, to love God with everything that we are, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And wickedness at its core, sin at its core, is anti-love. And so the stench that's rising in God's nostril is because he so loves the world and he sees the destructiveness of Nineveh. Why did Jonah disobey? We'll see in this book that ultimately Jonah disobeys the word of God, which is to go to a city that Jonah hates. He hates the Ninevites. And at points, for very good reason, it is a really, really sick, twisted, distorted culture that treats human beings awfully. But Jonah knows if God preaches his message there, there's more than a good chance that he'll change Nineveh for the better. And Jonah doesn't want that. So Jonah leaves. Jonah gets on a boat. God forces a storm to come up. Those who are leading the boat, the captains of the ship, if you will, are like, what's going on? They wake up Jonah. Jonah's like, I'm the problem. Just throw me over. So was Jonah committing suicide? Yes, in a very real way. He's like, I'd rather die than go preach to Nineveh. I'd rather die. So they throw Jonah over, and in the severity and the kindness of God, God causes a great fish to swallow Jonah. And in the belly of this beast of a fish, Jonah comes to some recognitions. The climax is what we looked at last week, that salvation in any circumstance comes from God because God's very character is salvific. Meaning God in his very character is a savior. And this very God who is a savior is both kind and stern, kind and severe. 
So why does the word of the Lord come to Jonah a second time? I mean, God could have used anybody else. For that matter, God could have used dreams and visions. Why does he make Jonah do it? Because God's as concerned with Jonah as he is with Nineveh. He's recognized that within Jonah, there is wickedness like there is in Nineveh. The problem is Jonah doesn't recognize it. So often we read something like this and we think, well, here's what God's about. God's trying to get the message to Nineveh. And we think what God's doing is one thing in a moment. But folks, remember this. Beyond the book of Jonah, God is never doing one thing in a moment. God's doing hundreds of things, if not thousands, millions upon billions of things in any given moment. And in this moment, his calling of Jonah to preach a message was yes for Nineveh. But it was as much for Jonah because God was also trying to kill the Nineveh that exists in Jonah. So when you sit in this room and you presume, hey, this would be a great message for so-and-so, and this would be a great message for so-and-so, don't fall trap of Jonah that God's trying to kill in you that which you see in other people. Don't be the pot that's calling the kettle black. Let us not be the people who are experts in everybody else's sin, but fail to see our own. The message of the Bible consistently and continually is be an expert in your own sin, not in everybody else's sin. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, big name, uh, wrote some very famous books, wins a Nobel Peace Prize for what he writes, had fallen under the oppression of the Soviet Union, and he knew about their labor camps called the Gulag. And he could write endlessly about the wickedness of the Soviet Union as Jonah could write about the wickedness of Nineveh. But Solzhenitsyn doesn't just write about the wickedness of the Soviet Union. He writes this. The line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. Now, when Solzhenitsyn pens those words, do you think he understood that all included himself? What do you think? Every human heart. That's why he penned it. Because he knew the temptation to look at the Soviet Union and their oppressive realities and the gulag labor camps and goes, those evil, wicked men. But as he sat and he watched those that were the oppressors and those being oppressed, including himself, he concluded this, like the Apostle Paul, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wickedness that exists in them exists in me. The line that separates good and evil passes not through states the righteous states and the unrighteous states, between the classes, the rich and the poor, nor between political parties, the Democrats and the Republicans, but through the heart of every single person sitting in this room and living on earth, including you and including me. So may we not fall into the trap of the pot calling the kettle black, the trap of Jonah, which is why God in his kindness and his severity comes to Jonah a second time. He tells him, go preach. Go to the great city of Nineveh, verse 2, and proclaim to it the message I give you, which was the message 
Some other translations say, I've already given to you, which was the message, go preach, chapter 1, verse 1, against it because its wickedness has come up before me. So Jonah obeys. Because Jonah's so obedient? No, because he got swallowed by a big fish. And God rattled his cage like, you fool. And Jonah's like, Lord, you save, right? Okay. Fish spits him out on dry land. Word comes again. He's like, all right, Lord, what you've told me to do, I'm going to do. Jonah obeys the word of the Lord, and he goes to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, this is the message, and I'm certain he said more words than just this, but this is the summary of it. 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. There's two ways that this word is used throughout the Old Testament. Old Testament's written in Hebrew. This Hebrew word is used in two different ways, which is very interesting for when it's presented here. One of the words is, it will be destroyed. It will be destroyed, which is certainly what now the Ninevites hear, because in verse 9, the king says, who knows, God may relent with compassion and turn from his fierce anger. Now, I don't need to interpret those words. Fierce means fierce, and anger means anger. Forty more days, and God will bring upon Nineveh his fierce anger. Why? Because its wickedness has risen up against us. He's angry at the wickedness in Nineveh. Now, don't let yourself as the pot call the kettle black for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God is angry with sin. He's angry with human wickedness. His anger has been built up for the rising of Nineveh's wickedness has come up, has come up, has come up, and he's now going, enough is enough. And he calls a man to go preach against Nineveh who would think, I got to go preach against their wickedness, but totally neglect and not see his own. God's doing a million things in a moment that include both his kindness and his severity, but God is angry that he would turn from his fierce anger towards sin. Now, this is a, a truth that so often we don't want to hear and we don't want to look at, but this story is a true story. But it's also a story that foreshadows a coming reality for the totality of our world, including you and including me. And it's the reality that when the end comes, it's appointed for human beings to die once, the book of Hebrews says, and then the judgment. And that at the judgment, there's this moment, this huge moment where God is proved true and every man, every human being is declared a liar. And there's a separation of the authentic from the inauthentic. The authentic believing in God, which we're going to talk about what that looks like in a minute, 
unto eternal life, an abundant life. And the goats that Jesus talked about, where there is darkness and gnashing of teeth, a word called hell. This is true. God's anger will be poured out on sin and, in fact, is being poured out against sin. Romans 1.18 says this. The Apostle Paul says the wrath of God, the anger of God, is being revealed, presently revealed, from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. In the version I've set to memory, it's the wrath of God is being revealed against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of human beings who in their unrighteousness suppress the truth. I won't look at it. But what does it mean that the wrath of God is presently being revealed? Well, let me slow down for a minute and just say you don't have to be a master theologian to figure this out. Your frustration with yourself Let me just say your angst, deep-rooted angst over you not being who you know you should be and who you want to be is the wrath of God being revealed against you. The wrath of God being revealed against the godlessness and wickedness of people we experience every day. Open a news app. Look at our families. Feel the angst of our workplaces. The fear that sets up inside your bones right now as you look at the state of the world and you look out and go, where is this all going to end? That's the wrath of God, the consequences of sin, the reality of Paul that what one sows, this they will also reap. It isn't minor, folks. It's why the world is in catastrophic condition. It's why we experience deep-rooted fear in debilitating depression. We don't live in a happy-go-lucky world. Can I get an amen? That's the wrath of God being revealed against the fact that we are separated. The world in which God made is separated from the one who made it. George Whitfield, an amazing preacher who's now long gone, had this incredible line in which he looked at people in the crowd and he said, you wonder why when you go into the wild, the wild beast growls at you with a fierceness that it wants to take you over. You wonder why? Because you have an issue with its maker. Folks, why is it when he says that, that kids go to a zoo and know deep in their guts they should be able to pet those animals, but there's massive fences in huge plastic windows, impenetrable plastic in between them and the tiger when everything within the kid is like, I want to pet it. And you're like, but you'll be squashed. That's the wrath of God being revealed against the godlessness and wickedness of people. That's fact. You think that's crazy and I'm just trying to make a Christian argument. You tell me why that's true. Why is there such a compulsion in human beings for that which is right? Why is it that it's so natural for us to go, things are just not the way they should be, regardless of what you say? What is that? That's the wrath of God presently being revealed against the godlessness and the wickedness of people. Life is horrible because of sin. And God's not happy about it. He's massively angry about it. And every temptation within you and within me, within me and within you, to point the finger out there only reveals more of the problem. 
It's the pot calling the kettle black. God's angry with it, and we get stirred, and we're like, ah, God being angry. Rebecca Manley Pippert speaks to this reality. Becky Pippert says this. We tend to be taken aback by the thought that God could be angry. How can a deity who is perfect and loving ever be angry? We take pride in our tolerance of the excesses of others. So what's God's problem? But love detests what destroys the beloved. Real love stands against the deception, the lie, the sin that destroys. Nearly a century ago, the theologian E.H. Glifford wrote, human love here offers a true analogy. The more a father loves his son, the more he hates in him, the drunkard, the liar, the traitor. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. How can a good God forgive bad people without compromising himself? Does he just play fast and loose with the facts? Oh, never mind. Boys will be boys. Try telling that to a survivor of the Cambodian killing fields or to someone who lost an entire family in the Holocaust. No, to be truly good, one has to be outraged by evil and implicably hostile to injustice. I love that quote because it speaks to every single one of us. You get frustrated with God being angry. You get worried about that. You don't like the idea of God being angry. But if you love someone, you know why anger is so important and you know it. Because that which negatively affects them, you hate. You despise that which destroys the one you love. If it's alcoholism that's destroying it, you hate alcoholism. If it's meth that's destroying it, you hate it. If it's materialism, that they care more about money than they do about their own family, you hate it. If it's their own pride and their own comfort that destroys that now that dad won't be around their kids, you hate it. If it's them living out the wounds of their past and they're passing it on to you, you hate it. These are the moments sin doesn't just affect you. It affects generations after you. The words you speak to your children matter. They, the author of Proverbs says they're poison or fruit. You choose. They can kill or they can give life. It matters. And when it destroys that which God loves, which God loves the world, and every person in it, God loves people. He hates the evil. Don't be the pot that calls the kettle black. Because the line that separates good and evil runs through every single one of our hearts, including mine. Don't fall into the trap of Jonah. Now, interesting, the other word for overthrown is not just destroyed, but it's transformed. Forty days, Nineveh will be destroyed and built up in the word is or transformed. That last one transformed is what revealed the sickness in Jonah's heart. I don't want them to be transformed. It's an extremely powerful book that I once read. And there was a story within it about a young girl whose father had abused her tremendously her entire life. 
And as she sat with this counselor, he finally built up enough trust and enough communication over time that he presented to her a situation. He said, you have two buttons, one on your left and one on your right. The button on your left you can press and your father's destroyed right now. Destruction, one of the words for overthrown. The one on your right you press and he's transformed entirely and you have to live in a relationship with his transformed reality. The story that's written by this counselor says the girl just bursts into tears and puts her head down and it takes well over 15 minutes to get her to talk. She's heaving, crying. She says, you've presented me an impossible problem because if I push the button on the left and destroy my father, I'm every bit as bad as him. I'm every bit as much of a monster. But if I press the one on the right, you're calling me to do something never in my entire life do I want to do. Neither the God's word or that situation answer the fullness of that problem, but what it does reveal is our tendency deep down to believe they're worse without coming to the recognition of our own sick, twisted, distorted wickedness before God that affects ourselves and affects others and that God loves us too much to leave us there. That quote that Becky Pippert said says this, anger is embedded in love. Love demands it. God's love for Nineveh and his love for Jonah called Jonah to preach and look at the response of the Ninevites, which, which can train us unto transformation, train us what to do with our own sin. The Ninevites believed God, verse 5. They believed God what? The message, we're going to be destroyed. And they believe that God was God, that he was right. So they respond, listen to this, quickly. They believe God and a fast was proclaimed. And all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. This is amazing. Because sackcloth is typically put on in the ancient world and in the Bible after a crisis. They so believe God that destruction's coming and so believe that they're worthy of destruction that they place the sackcloth on them now. That they go, the anger of God is righteous. He's right in being angry with us. We are that wicked. We are that distorted. We are that sick. And it's affected everything. So they call a fast. They put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king, verse 6 of Nineveh, the king, the top of the top, the man who was perpetuating a culture of violence, a culture that destroyed people, that there were bodies in the wake who'd literally and figuratively been destroyed. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, we learn another lesson about this idea of how we're transformed, or the biblical word repentance. He rises from his throne. Who sits in thrones? Help me. Kings, right? He rises from his throne, took off his royal robes. In his rising from the throne, not taking the seat of a king, and taking off his royal robes, what is he saying? I'm not a king. I'm not a king. 
covers himself with sackcloth, there's judgment coming, and he sits down in the dust. Repentance demands humility to recognize your sin, to recognize the evil that's within you and the extent of its negative influence that's gone everywhere. And he lies down, sits down in dust. When you think about dust in the Bible, it's from dust you came and to dust you will return. He's embracing his creatureliness. I'm not a king above other men. I'm a mere mortal like everybody else. And the sackcloth means I'm a sinner and destruction's coming upon me. He sits down in the dust. Here's the reality. I would say the crux. The only way unto transformation and not unto destruction is get off your throne. The essence of sin is pride. C.S. Lewis, I've said it before, said, Lucifer, the angel, became the devil through pride. It was through pride that Lucifer became the devil. The centrality of repentance is surrender to God, which means the recognition not just of your creatureliness as a human, but your sinfulness. It isn't they're the problem, it's I'm the problem. I contribute to the fracture of the world. I contribute to the fracture of my marriage, the fracture of my family, the fracture of my relationships, the fracture of our workplace. May we not become experts in everybody else's sin, but might we be experts in our own. Don't be the pot that calls the kettle black. He then establishes a decree, verse 7. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. Do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. Listen, he's saying the people and the animals and everything in here has to fast. Let people and animals be covered with sackcloth, fast and cover themselves. Here's what he understands, like Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, when they sin, everything around them was affected with sin. The sin of Nineveh didn't just affect them, it affected the cattle, Everything. When you think your sin and your unrighteousness only affects you, you're a liar. When you play fast and loose with the facts, like Becky Pippard said, oh, humans are just humans. And there's bodies that lay in the wake. When you're a spouse who's treated your other spouse the way you've treated them, and you go, well, I, you know, I'm just human. I struggle every once in a while. And the effects of that last a lifetime. Folks, sin has catastrophic realities in our lives and everybody else's lives. The king of Nineveh understood this, and then he said, let everyone call casually on the Lord. No, urgently, now. Destruction's coming now. This reality of the judgment in the future will come now. But here's the deal. The reality of the anger of God is embedded in his love. He's calling upon you saying, I'm angry at sin because I love you. I hate that which destroys the beloved. I love you and I love the world. I'm warning you because I love you. Turn to me and be transformed. And then look at what he says. Let them urgently call upon God. They have to repent. They have to give up their evil ways and their violence. Repentance changes its behavior. And then he says, and who knows? 
God may relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we wouldn't perish. He's covered in sackcloth. He's sitting in ashes and dust and he's pleading all of the people, fast, confess, cover yourself in sackcloth. Call urgently upon God because who knows? Now the sackcloth means this, God if you bring upon us your judgment in full force and in full fury and we die under your judgment and live forever under your judgment, you're worthy because we're wicked. But who knows? Maybe if I fall at the feet of God, we'd find compassion. Now, who's God? Who is this God that we call urgently upon? The God who's the only God the everlasting God. Well, Exodus 34, verse 6 says this, and he passed in front of Moses, that's God proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God who's slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. The kindness of God. And yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation. You want to live in your sin? You're under punishment for generations. But who's God? If you fall at the feet of God and you call urgently upon this God, who knows? You might find compassion. The amazing part of this king is he fell at the feet and began to learn the character of God And he learned God is compassionate. Verse 10, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. Folks, the anger of God is embedded in the love of God. This is why Jesus stands on a mount over Jerusalem and he says this in Matthew 23. He says, Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, You who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed, longed to gather you and to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Willing to what? Get off your throne. Submit to God. Fall on your face in the dust and call urgently upon him, recognizing your own sin. Folks, God is compassionate and kind. How does he deal with the injustice of sin? He takes it upon himself. This image is so powerful. It's an ancient image of a burning down barn. And in the biblical story, it's a barn we've lit on fire with our sin. We have. Don't be the pot that calls the kettle black. You have. I have. The barn we've lit on fire, that the destruction's coming down upon us of God's anger against sin. And yet he puts his very self, his only son, inside of there, calling to all the children like chicks, come, take refuge under my wings. And in the ancient world, they would they say they would come to burnt down barns, and in the middle of it, they would find a charred hen. And underneath a dead charred, totally burned hen, they would hear the chirps of the saved chicks. 
Jesus was charred, charred for our sin so that we might have the breath, the chirp of life, and not just life little, but abundant life. And that charred hen lives again three days later that we might have the same resurrected life that he had. But will you come? The only reason you won't is if you won't surrender and urgently call upon God because the God whose feet we fall at, if you come, whether you're a Jonah who's thought you're so religious and so good and I've got my stuff together and he's saying, look at yourself. Don't be the pot that calls the kettle black. Come now and find life. Today's the day of salvation. Don't leave here. Whether you're the Christian that's lived forever and you go, oh my gosh, I'm Jonah. Or you sat here and you go, I've never believed in Jesus Christ, but I understand like the king of Nineveh of my own wickedness and how I contribute to the problem. Come to Christ. Amen? Father, we praise you and thank you for your grace and mercy. God, let your spirit come. Let your spirit bring belief. God, blow your spirit. Blow your spirit in this place and bring salvation. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.